We're back after 75 months. Very no, excited just... to be back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's been a, it's been a little while. It's been a been a quick minute. I've, I've had people on Twitter and Facebook and everywhere hitting us up saying when are we going to be back. Well, we're back. Um, I wish we had 27 hours in a day, each of us, right? So he would be very nice. Yeah, we'd be uh, we'd be in better shape. Um, yeah, no, physique science is back. We're gonna try and get more regular with these episodes. Uh, we have a really special guest today. Before we do that, let's uh, let's cover kind of what we've been doing. So, he, what have you been up to the last few months? Well, um, it's now mid July. I'm a little scared at how quickly the summer has been going by. But um, since I think the last episode, I have since landed a book deal with Human Kinetics. And which was exciting, and I've been spending the past two and a half months working on that, and I have another month and a half to go before wow. um, everything is done. Yeah, they gave me a pretty, pretty tight timeline, but I was, uh, I had to get a, a, an extension last week, another extra <laughs> six weeks, because I realized that uh, three and a half months to write a book was just not enough time for me. Do, do um, we get the uh, insight as to what's it on? Or is yes. It top- uh, so actually, they. They want to title it Eat, Live, Thrive, which is my brand slogan. Yeah, that, well, that's and, great for your brand. And I was really excited because they were very open-minded to the idea of my uh, discussing the importance of mindset in the context of, of health and fitness because I was telling them about how I think it's one of the most overlooked aspects uh, in the industry and a better understanding of human behavior and just health psychology in general will can take us a long way in, in, in learning how to implement because um, I always say, you know, what good is knowing what's optimal and what's best? Or what, what, is all, what does that even mean if you can't adhere to it consistently, if you can't apply the behaviors on a regular basis in, to, for the changes to take place? So that's, 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 what, that, that's the big thing going on in my life. Um, I'm also starting grad school next, uh, in a month from now, actually, um, here at um, Arizona State University. I got getting my master's in psychology. I'm working at the Health Behavior Lab, which was, which is right up my alley. So preparing for that and um, wrapping up the finishing touches on my next ebook, which is a collaboration with my friend Carrie Northington. Lane, you, you know her, IFBB Pro, and worked um, with Carrie for a while. Yes, and she. Um, this is a beginner beginner's guide to bikini competitions, because um, we at this point we've uh, worked with a number of different clients. Together, my with myself doing training and nutrition, and with her doing the posing coaching, and it's been working out really well. She's local here in the Arizona area, so we decided to collaborate. So that's about ready to go, and then um, those are the big things really going on with me. Very cool. Very yeah. cool. What about that's, you? That's I feel very underaccomplished right now. I need to go back <laughs> you to school. Get to it's like do we, that, actually, it's like when we had uh, Dr. Joe on the on the on the thing, and oh, I'm wow, like, what? Yeah. I, I got to go back to I got to go back to school. I got to go back to school. So I've actually been giving that more thought as of late. Um, I think I'd really like to to go back and get a master's or PhD in exercise physiology. I think that would be uh, be really cool. You want another uh, PhD? Yeah. Well, part of me is like, well, if I'm going to go for a master's, I might as well get the PhD too. <laughs> But uh, I also remember how difficult that was, you know. So, yeah, we'll have to see. Uh, I've got a lot of oars in the water right now, but I, w- I would love to go back to school. I think that that's uh, – I think, like, that might become my, my hobby, you know. Like, Joe, just go back to get another degree. Um, yeah, I, I've i been real busy with, you know, my businesses that I've been starting up. You know, Carbon, obviously, has, has been a big deal. Um, 
we're going to have a protein powder that's going to be coming out in uh, in August. So I've spent a lot of time working on that. Um, How's the reception to Carbon Bin? Uh, very good. The the it takes it's only got two products right now, and it takes a while right. to really get traction in the market, especially because the market's so saturated with options. And you know it's dosed properly, and so when it's dosed properly, it's usually expensive. And so uh-huh. um, people have have complained about the price. And uh, what I've always told them is like, okay, well, all the ingredient and the amounts are listed on the side. Go out and buy those ingredients individually and see if you saved any money. <laughs> and usually mm-hmm. they come back. I had actually had one person on Twitter say, well, I tried it and it actually cost me uh, 50 cents more uh, per serving or per, per bottle. And I was like, and it tasted like crap. So mm-hmm. I was like, well, there you go. Uh, but no, the reception in terms of the effectiveness and the people, they seem to really, really like it. They like the flavors. Uh, the protein powder is going to be awesome. It's nothing crazy. I mean, I tell everybody, you know, one whey protein is as good as the next. If you, if you, I went with a whey protein isolate because I wanted something that most people could take. And there's just so many people that have issues with a pure whey concentrate. Right. That's true. Um, there's no, it's no more anabolic than, than a, than a, than a whey concentrate. But, um, uh, it's got, it's very, got very low carb. It's going to be less than one gram of carb per, per serving for most flavors mm-hmm. and then less than one gram of fat per serving. So it's a really, really high protein, really low calorie, uh, protein. Very high in leucine, over three grams of leucine per serving, and um, it tastes really good. So I'm very excited about it just from the perspective that I'll get to use it and I get what I – like one of the nice things about my supplement line is now I don't have to buy 15 different things. I just have like That's true because you things. made it yourself. You custom right. It's, it's pretty three much a custom blend. My, yep. Three things in my, uh, in my, in my uh, cabinet. So that's been really cool uh, working on that. It's been uh, definitely a lesson in frustration and, and waiting, but uh, it's been very cool. And then actually what I'm probably most excited about is Avatar Nutrition. Um, I'm sure you've seen that. Um, that has been taking off like crazy. We have almost 4,500 members on Avatar. And I think that has the potential to have 100,000 members. Wow. Uh, I mean it just – it's been working really great for people. And you know, giving customized macronutrient recommendations for you know, less than $10 a month, which you know, if – like I think we all recognize that you know a computer and a and a and a a logic system in a computer isn't open to interpretation. So there's obviously value in hands-on coaching or or online coaching um, because there's room for interpretation. However, um, you know for people who can't afford hundreds of dollars a month for a coach, uh, this is a great option. And uh, you know eventually, um, we actually so we actually have uh, we have a patent pending on this, but we actually have. Uh, we're paying. We're, we pay a full-time web developer quite a bit of money uh, every month to keep updating this thing to make sure it gets better and better and better. And it really has. We our right. attrition rate on clients is extraordinarily low. We probably have a lower attrition rate than I do on regular clients. <laughs> mm-hmm. So it's it's pretty amazing. And uh, we're we're going to take it a long way. We have somebody writing an algorithm right now that will actually start generating meal plans for people. Uh, based on foods they like, based on uh, based on their custom macronutrient recommendations, like it's going to be really, really cool. I mean, I it's think just that me- meal plan feature sounds like it's much needed, especially for the individuals who are not the most familiar with tracking and adhering to macros. Absolutely, and 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 because we know this, like flexible dieting is great, but you need to get there over time. And work, so, yeah. for, for the people that are just starting out, like to have that kind of training wheels is going to be huge. And so then they've. You know, they can pay a little bit extra, get a meal plan, and, and then once they feel comfortable with flexible dieting, they can get rid of the meal plan and pay the more baseline rate. Um, 
but yeah, we're, we're I, so I think you know this is the I don't there's nothing else out there like this, and mm -hmm. for the price you can't beat it. And like I said, I think it'll have, I think it's just gonna people are just gonna keep getting more and more excited about it. And I think it'll have a hundred thousand people within five years. Wow. So that that's my that's that's my goal anyway. So that's mm -hmm. that's my retirement slush fund right there. <laughs> <laughs> so, anyways, um, but yeah, other than that, you know. Uh, uh, waiting on our our second baby to be born. It's, uh, That's doing right. Yep, it's uh, very exciting, very nerve wracking, but very exciting. Uh, how, how, what's the what's the timeline? Uh, September 9th. So Isabel will be a C section because mm. uh, she was a C section first time, and uh, sometimes they do what's called a V back for people who've had the, the where they can deliver uh, vaginally for people who've had a C section before. But she wasn't a candidate for it, so she'll be okay. having another C-section. So the only plus side is we know exactly when that baby is going to be born. Well, uh, not much longer now. Yeah, it's going to be uh, it's going to be pretty soon. So yeah, we, I've been keeping busy with that, traveling, um, you know, all the same old stuff. So you know, might as well add another kid to the mix and awesome. go back and get another degree, right? Why not? <laughs> <laughs> no big deal. So, Speaking of degrees and speaking of accomplishments, we have a really cool guest, and I think a, somebody, a lot of people have been asking for for a long time. Mm -hmm. And since I just don't like him, I decided you know, to try and keep him off the radio <laughs> we show. Were like, he's like, Brad, no, how about someone else? How about someone else? <laughs> no, obviously, uh, we love Brad Schoenfeld, and uh, Brad has done just an enormous amount of research in the area of strength and conditioning, muscle hypertrophy. Um, and nutrition as well. And, and Brad actually has a new book out called Science and Development of Muscle Hypertrophy that's a textbook that uh, I'll be picking up because um, I've always loved learning about this stuff and I'm sure I'll learn some new stuff from him. And I had the pleasure of meeting Brad at the Epic Fitness Summit in uh, 2015 and uh, got a chance to hang out with him a little bit and uh, really enjoyed my time there, learned a lot, and uh, it's a real pleasure to, to have him on the show today. Brad, thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you guys. My pleasure. So, Brad, we asked all of our guests this uh, because I think a lot of our listeners not only are interested in science, but a lot of them have aspirations of their own in either science or competition or both. So uh, what got you into the science of muscle hypertrophy? Yeah. Uh, so interestingly, my, my undergrad degree was in business, and I really didn't know what I wanted to do when I was just getting out of college. And what I did know was that I was really unhappy with my physique. I was really the typical 115-pound weakling. And when I started uh, resistance training, basically I took to it like a fish in water. And um, it just completely turned around my entire self-esteem, the way I thought about myself, my confidence. And um, people would start coming up to me in the gym and say, hey, what have you been doing? And uh, that led to me ultimately starting to train people, not really knowing what the heck I was doing. I basically was training them like I trained myself, which is, as any good trainer knows, not the way you want to train someone because there's a, a huge inter-individual difference and goals come into play. But regardless, uh, I started training people and I got into, soon thereafter, also into competition. And that fueled my desire to become more scientific about the training. I grew up, in, by the way, in a medical family. Both my parents were physicians, and I was instilled the scientific method from the time I was young. It just took a little, a little while to click with me in terms of its application. But once I started getting into the, the science and started to read, uh, this is uh, in the early part of the turn of the century, started to really uh, read, uh, get on PubMed and read the journals and articles, it just changed my entire scope of, of thinking and uh, really has been a a whirlwind since then. I went on for my master's degree in exercise phys, 
I got my PhD where I focused on uh, applied exercise science, and now I uh, teach at the university level at Lehman College, and I head their human performance lab. You skipped a lot of steps there, Brad. I know you've done a lot more. I feel like you're kind of underplaying all of your accomplishments. I, I was just t saying the other day, I feel like Brad's one of the most productive and most efficient, accomplished people that I know, um, not just in the industry, but you know, uh, amongst all the people that I've met. Brad, you've published how many books now? Uh, well, it's consumer books. I've published 11, and this was my wow. first textbook. So yeah, I've done, uh, I've had a good career as a writer, too. I, I've written for most of the major fitness magazines, uh, Muscle Mag, Muscle and Fitness. I currently have a column in uh, Muscular Development Magazine, Fitness RX. Uh, so yeah, I've done a lot of writing, uh, and my uh, my uh, book career has spanned now almost 15, 15 years of, of multiple books over time. So yeah, yeah, a lot of that. Another I, year. Uh, almost. And I, wow. I do now, I, I do a lot of international speaking, uh, with uh, a lot of it is with uh, colleagues of mine, Brett Contreras and Alan Aragon and James Krieger. We kind of have a four musketeers uh, right. <laughs> where we uh, we school people on science, educate people on science. And uh, yeah, Brad, 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 I was at Epic. I saw Fred Hahn just completely destroy you. Okay, so <laughs> let's not try to play games here. <laughs> Fred's trying to nudge his way into that Four Musketeers. We're we're doing our best to resist that. So. <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't help it. But yeah, I've published now uh, over now over a hundred peer-reviewed papers too. So that's amazing. Uh, that's pretty uh, recent too, huh? The milestone. Yeah, the milestone just happened a wow. couple weeks. Wow! Congratulations. So. Yep. Thank you. I think I have like fifteen. So yay, go me. <laughs> Oh uh, no, that's 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 that, that's for anybody who understands everything that goes into peer review. Um, I think that that's they they understand the magnitude of that accomplishment. Um, that's very very difficult. You know, just one. Uh, I just actually finished submitting my my final study for my PhD six years later um, to the Journal oh, of Nutrition. Wow. I didn't know that. And um, yeah, I mean, it's just you know. People don't realize from from now. Obviously, that's that's been delayed just because I've gotten busy with work and you know whatever and um, winning bodybuilding titles, powerlifting titles. <laughs> yeah. yeah, some of that, some of that shit too. Uh, yeah. But uh, you know, it's one of those small things accomplishments. People don't people don't realize that um, you know from inception. You know, I think I think academics is like the the quintessential like delayed gratification because from inception. To publication, you may be looking at like three or four years. Right, you know, now, it's not just one week; it's years. No, you know, good, good <laughs> scenario. Maybe you, maybe you get it within a year. Mm. You know, that does happen, um, but very rarely. And so, you know, it's just it's just you you like literally you're going to run into roadblocks and every step. You're going to run into the IRB funding uh, problems while you're actually conducting the experiment. You know, which is why I'm sure Brad, you always like probably chuckle when you see some of the comments from people who have, have no familiar. Who who hashtag evidence based but have no familiarity with actually designing and conducting studies? Oh, well, why didn't you do this? And it's like, well, I didn't happen to have fifteen million dollars just laying around, you know? <laughs> yeah, uh, my favorite is is that uh, you need to use pro bodybuilders or it's it's irrelevant. <laughs> They're living in you know in fantasy land on Venus somewhere. You know, I, I always I always love what uh, Jeremy uh, Lineke says, and he said, you know why we don't use bodybuilders? Because they suck as tough subjects. Because they feel like they already know more than you. 
Because let's just, and let's just say that you have like you'd want to do a study on high versus low protein diet. What bodybuilder are you going to get to do the low protein diet? Who, who who's going to volunteer for that? Right? Yeah. Like you you whatever their bias is, they're not going to if they think it's going to cost them gains uh, with a Z. With a Z, uh, yeah. They're they're not going to do it, right? And so, yeah, it's just it's just, and I'm not I'm not blaming them, but. You know, and I always, I always tell people like, listen, all right, like, yes, I get that there's a population limitation for what you, for what you're saying, but also let's think about this from a realistic perspective. What evidence that you have, do you have that physiology would like somehow just reverse itself by, by somebody being a elite level bodybuilder, you know, like typically what you're looking at with genetics or steroids is they just make you more of what you are, right? So it's not that physiology would reverse itself. It's just going to go further in one direction, if that makes sense. Yeah, obviously generalizability exists on a continuum. And uh, it's not as if that it's not like doing a a study in uh, in a pig versus, you know, a human in terms of there was doing lifting, you know, right, you're you're mimicking a lifting event with a pig and then transferring that to a human uh, lifting study. So yeah, it exists on a continuum. And certainly the higher you get closer to your genetic ceiling, uh, the harder it is to gain mass, certainly naturally, and uh, the lower you get in body fat, the harder it is to lose additional body fat. So there's certain things that you you have to extrapolate. But like you said, there's you you can get huge uh, un, a huge amount of understanding from the types of studies we carried out, and to dismiss them just as silly. And it, like you said, really reflects a lack of appreciation not only for what goes into conducting a study, but the generalize what uh, exists in generalizability as well. Uh, speaking of which, real quick, did you did you see the uh, study from UNC on the fat-free mass index? Speaking of natural attainable lim- limits, yep. uh, did you did you see that? I, I know about. I, is there a recent one? I, I know uh, when, so, when was it published. Yeah, so Abby Smith Ryan's lab, uh, Eric Trex. Oh, so so it was at the NSCA conference. It was an abstract, actually. So I shouldn't say it was a. It's not published yet. Um, but oh, I think uh, I just Eric, saw that on uh, ResearchGate. Yeah, so uh, Eric Trexler, actually the first uh, winner of the BioLane Foundation grant, go Eric. Um, he um, he looked at uh, because the original study on fat-free mass index was done in people who had been weightlifting for two years, and they looked at what they you know tried to find what they thought was the upper limit, and I believe they, it was a fat-free mass index of 25. And what the internet has done is taken that and said anybody that's over 25 is obviously on steroids. Right. And, uh, you know, I'm like a 26 or 27, I think it is. And um, I said, well, you know, I, I've always said, well, listen, I, I think you're, you're, you also have standard deviations. You know, like there's, there's, there's outliers. I think that in general, probably 25 is a, is a I think that mo- that's, that's probably a, a, a decent rule to use. Uh, but I wouldn't consider it a hard cap. And he actually looked at elite uh Division one college football players who were being, you know, randomly drug tested. Now, could people be using steroids? Sure. But people in the original study could have been using steroids as well. That's so I, I kind of I feel like Division one NCAA college athletes are probably drug tested as thoroughly as probably anybody out there. And um, he found that the their the average was more about like a 27, 28. Um, and they actually had somebody that registered as a 32, uh, an offensive lineman, which is pretty incredible. Um, so yeah, it just I think it's sh- that that demonstrates just more importantly like how your population makes a difference because um, two year 
people who are weight resistance trained is a much different question than like elite level athletes. But I just, I was uh, curious if you had seen it because I thought it was pretty cool. No, I haven't, but I, and you also bring up another really good point there and that this is something people don't often realize as well is that research deals with the means and it right. doesn't, as you said, deal, it, people don't consider the fact when I carry out a study, I'm getting huge inter-individual variability. So we'll have a fairly large standard deviation virtually every training study I carried out, carry out. And just because some you, you might have a mean gain of 10% doesn't mean that someone's gaining nothing and another one isn't gaining 20%. So to to justify something based upon, hey, this is what it shows, it shows a 10% gain. So that's that's kind of the uh, the rock, the, the bedrock. Right. What we have to go by is, is again misguided in terms of what, what you can actually extrapolate from research. Well, I, I tell people that um, that yes, it's in terms of coaching as well. Like, yes, there are. I think science is like a big blunt instrument, is what I always say. I think science, like scientific research, tells us what not to do. But in terms of like from a coaching perspective, coaching is kind of an art, and because at the end of the day, the means can help give you a starting point. But you are not a mean. You are an individual data point. And you've, you've seen this in research. I mean there are studies that show like in like new beginning weightlifters that like some people after 12 weeks they go from – they can start out squatting like you know 100 kilos and by the end they're squatting like 250 kilos. Like unbelievable responses. Um, and then there are some people who don't actually get bigger or stronger like in 12 weeks. I think you've probably seen those those discrepancies. Maybe not in your studies, Brad, but I know they exist. Um, and there's so there's just huge intra-individual variability, and that's because we're dealing with a heterogeneous population. You know, one advantage to my studies in using rats was we could really pick out a lot more mechanistic stuff because we're using basically genetically identical uh, rats in a homogeneous population, and so we could be relatively convinced that differences we were seeing were not genetic variability but just differences in treatment. And I think that's one thing you have to realize with humans is to actually get differences, to get statistical differences, it, it, you have to have a very well designed study, it has to be, have enough people, it has to be carried out long enough because otherwise it's just going to get lost in the, in the wash of intra-individual variability. Uh, that's such a great point and, uh, and that's why to me the uh, essence of an evidence-based practice which again also people misunderstand that. They think it's just you look at the research and the research tells you what to do. Well, research never tells you what to do. It provides guidance. So basically you use you t an evidence-based approach is going to take research as <coughs> underlying guiding effect and then you have to use your own expertise and consider the individual in terms of tweaking that because you're never going to be told what to do through in an applied science like exercise or nutrition. You're never going to be told what to do. It's going to give you, a like you said, a guideline. It's going to set up a template and then from there you need to tweak it. You know, I think that's why uh, it's so important to have, uh, you know, be involved in the research, but also have the practical experience out yep. in the field as a coach, as a trainer, as a bodybuilder yourself, applying all of the findings and then, and then making tweaks as you see fit for yourself or other individuals. Um, because as you guys were saying, they're just averages and there are always going to be people who respond um, differently. And I think, Lane, the study that you were mentioning, I remember uh, reading about that and uh, from from several years ago about uh, how people respond so differently to maybe the exact same training protocol. And uh, I, f I forget the name of the study. It's escaping them. I'll have to go pull it up. Um, but basically one study found that there were a, a few individuals who actually 
uh, appear to have lost strength after following a specific training protocol, whereas <laughs> the most, on the other end of the spectrum, you have the extreme responders uh, gaining a tremendous amount of strength. Um, so I think that's something that's not to be overlooked when it comes to you know interpreting our research findings. And I think that that's also a, a good uh, reason to understand that um, somebody holding up a client and saying, look, this, look at them, this worked, is, is not a, a validation of, of an effective method, you know, because uh, a, a genetically, um, uh, genetically gifted individual is going to respond to anything, you know, just, just, just have them move and they'll grow, you right. know. Right, and that's not necessarily a testament to the program itself, it might just be a subpar program and the, you have a super elite responder. Yeah, and I, I think that uh, there was an Olympic weightlifting coach, and I think his name was J.C. Santos, and he said one thing that, you know, these people that hold their, their clients up as, as, as kind of, you know, validation for what they've been doing is that what bad programming does is it weeds out the genetically elite individuals because the only the genetic elites can make progress on that. So what happens is everybody else gets injured or falls off or doesn't make progress. And what you're left with is the genetic elites that would make 99% of their progress doing almost anything. And so you hold them up as, as well, this works, and it's not a validation of anything. And I thought that was a pretty interesting take on, the, on things. I think really where you start to see effective coaching methods are taking people with bad genetics to a decent spot and taking people with average genetics to a good spot, if that makes sense. Yeah, you know, um, what's interesting to me is you know, I think we all like to look up to individuals with elite levels of strength, with world-class uh, physiques, you know, pros and whatnot. But I also think what's what's might be even more interesting and what's worth paying attention to, but it was often overlooked, is um, looking at people who, uh, as you were saying, Lane, maybe have very average uh, baseline levels to start with, and were able to uh, overcome their their obstacles. And maybe now they don't have the most uh, absolute best levels of strength, but relative to where they came from, um, it's a big improvement. And I also think that I remember, um, I don't like to comb through my, my blog post from years ago, kind of makes me <laughs> cringe, but there was, there, was, there was one that I wrote uh, four years ago on uh, how having average genetics can actually be a huge blessing because it forces you to really examine your methods and become curious about how to really become better because I think that if you're naturally good at something, you don't try as hard. Um, so I well, think look, it can, at, yeah. look at the best coaches in most sports. Most of them are, um, if they were professional, they were average at best as a professional. And a lot of them were never professionals. They just they had to study uh, to become basically adequate right mm -hmm. and um yeah so i think that that's that's that, that's a really good point um with that said we've kind of gone off on a tangent uh brad <laughs> you are you are uh very well known as kind of a purveyor of muscle hypertrophy and uh and especially in training and uh, one of I, there's a study of yours I, I quote all uh, quote all the time, and it was your your volume study where you equated for volume and you had people doing different reps and sets, because we always think of this classic hypertrophy rep range versus a strength rep range, and what you kind of showed was that um, that's a little bit of a, of a of a misnomer. Can you can you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah. So this that actually was uh, my dissertation study. Um, 
And it was a study that I'd been looking to carry out for almost a decade because I mean, one of the advantages I think I have as a researcher now is that I spent oh, 18 years as a personal trainer. I own my own training facility and I train literally thousands, several thousand people over the years. And I would think about all, I know the research, I'd say, you know, there's nothing really that that's, tells this, tells me what to do here, or when I, when I tell, tell me what to do. I mean, there's nothing really that gives insight into this topic. Uh, there, there was some, uh, a few studies that had some mild, um, you know, correlation of what I wanted to do, but certainly nothing in well-trained subjects. And what I did was I wanted to look at a bodybuilding style routine versus a powerlifting style routine. People know that bodybuilding is... Uh, involves high metabolic stress, so lots of volume, higher volumes, uh, moderate repetitions, whereas powerlifting, it's generally lower volume or, or less metabolic stress and, uh, and, lower, and lower repetitions, higher, heavier weights. And what I did was I equated the volume, uh, which generally isn't done. Uh, usually you can have lower volume just because of the grinding involved. But I wanted to see from a control standpoint, you want to make sure that the volume isn't going to be getting in the way of why maybe powerlifters don't gain as much muscle as bodybuilders. And uh, anyway, we carried the study out. We unfortunately had a few dropouts by equating the volume. It did put a lot of stress on the joints in the uh, powerlifting group, and we had a number of dropouts there. So it was kind of a challenge to keep that going, but we, uh, we ended up with a nice, a decent sample, and we found there was no difference in muscle growth uh, between uh, the subjects. Uh, so powerlifting and bodybuilding, assuming a volume equated uh, routine, had no difference. Now the strength actually was greater for the powerlifting as you might expect. Mm -hmm. uh, not, not a lot, but enough where certainly if, if your primary goal is strength, uh, then you'd want, to, you'd want to train with heavier weights at least some of the time. Now here's the kicker though. Um, it's not, people often will say, well, what about time under tension? Um, what we found from this, what you can extrapolate is, by equating the volume, the time under tension for the powerlifting was roughly the same over the course of the week, but on each individual set, it was a lot less. So a set of powerlifting might be nine seconds versus 30 seconds for bodybuilding. And you'd say, well, time under tension uh, is going to be a factor. Well, if, if it is, it's only a, a factor in terms of the global amount of what you're doing within a given session or a given week. It's not specific or not necessarily specific to doing it. Uh, if, if I'm making sense here, within each each set, so you can have a lower a set that has a lower TUT, but as long as you're making that up with more sets, greater volume in terms of the sets, the TUT will equate over time. And, and it was that's just a nice example of where really it's the volume that is a greater driver of uh, hypertrophy, not the load itself. And I've subsequently carried out studies in much uh, lighter load versus moderate load, and uh, Stu Phillips' lab has done as well uh, similar work. And, and really the Intensity of load uh, seems to be less of a driver of hypertrophy, much less than the volume itself. Uh, I still am of the opinion, and there's some, certainly some evidence of this, that there might be inherent differences in a, from a fiber type perspective, uh, that your very light load training might predispose towards type 1 fiber uh, hypertrophic response, whereas your heavier loads predispose to a type 2 fiber response. That is not well... Uh, delineated. Some studies show it does. Uh, the recent study by uh, out of Stu Phillips' lab did not show that effect. So we need more more work in that area. Right. Now that's that's interesting, Brian, because I've I've said for a long time not to toot my own horn. Toot toot. Um, <laughs> that time under tension, people make a big deal about it, but it's cumulative. It's right. cumulative through the course of 
a, a session, a week, a month, a year, like it's a cumulative time under tension. And that's also the, the perspective I've used when people really emphasize doing slow uh, reps to get more time under tension. It's like, well, you're doing slower reps, but you have to use a lighter load. If you took the same load, the same light load, and just went to failure with a normal pace, guess what? You'd probably reach failure at about the same time under tension. Um, you're just making it harder within the individual rep. And uh, there's actually some research to show that as well. Um, so yeah, I think that people, and, and you, you touched on it a little bit, so people want to know what the, the best quote-unquote rep range is. And I think the fact of the matter is every rep range has inherent benefits and drawbacks, right? So in your low load group, they didn't get as strong, but they had the same hypertrophy response, and they were in the gym a hell of a lot less time, and they didn't get as injured. There wasn't as much of a dropout rate. Now the powerlifting group, got stronger, um, but they spent a lot more time in the gym and accumulated more injuries. So depending on what your goals are, um, you, you, I always tell people everything is tools in a tool belt and you just have to pick whether or not this requires your screwdriver or your power drill. Well, and it's also not a binary choice lane. So the other thing, and this is another thing that people get into, uh, the lay public often gets into, they look at a study and it's kind of the either or, which is what we study generally in research. We don't look at combinations, but to me, if you really take the body of literature into account, it it suggests a benefit towards a periodized approach of if your goal, first of all, if your goal is maximal hypertrophy, uh, there might be an effect just of, of fiber type specific effect of doing that for maximizing growth. But if nothing else, getting this, you probably don't need to train at, uh, well, not probably, I, I think it's kind of well shown that even uh, selective use of, of powerlifting within a a um, over time within a cycle will get you almost as strong as doing powerlifting all the time. Now it might not get you to be a yep. champion powerlifter, but for the 99.9% .9 of the people, they're not going to be meaningful practical differences in their strength. So just integrating some heavier load training and some lighter load training also to deload the joints from an unloading standpoint and to, uh, to have more restorative effects just as a sensible approach. Uh, and, and it, again, to me, speaks to the effect that uh, you don't, while we look at studies by themselves, you have to then uh, take out the practical implications of those uh, and consider things like injury rate, what's the you know, time, time efficiency, and other factors as well. Yeah, somebody asked me, one, I think time efficiency is a big thing, and somebody asked me one time, hey, I want to get as strong and as big as possible, but I only have 45 minutes to spend in the gym. What would you recommend? And I said, well, there's probably a few ways to do it, but what I would recommend, and they, they, they love the big lifts. And I said, well, I would probably go in, work up to a max single, a conservative max single, and uh, do that. And then I would do several sets. Well, if you're sets. lame, though, that'll be the end of your workout, 45 yeah, minutes. Yeah, that's right. You're done. See how it takes me. <laughs> but, uh, you know, for the average individual who's not working up to 600-plus pounds right. and their warm-up takes them an hour and a half, uh -huh. uh, I, I said, you know, I would do a one rep max and then I would do as many sets of, you know, 10 to 15 as you can get in after that. And I think that that will, you know, you'll, you'll get the strength adaptation and you'll get the, the volume as well. Um, I said there's not a perfect way to do it, but, you know, the, I think the point is that higher reps are beneficial because you can get more volume in a shorter period of time. Lower reps are beneficial because you get more strength adaptations um, and you just, like you said, you, 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 Ideally, if you're looking for strength and hypertrophy, you're using both. Yeah, and, and the other thing with strength is, is that it can carry over into an ability to use heavier loads during your moderate rep sets, 
which thus can drive greater, potentially at least, hypothetically drive greater hypertrophy through greater mechanical tension at a given uh, loading zone. So that's a, that's well, a great point, Brad, and that's something I said probably, again, toot my own horn again, I think I said that like, hell, 13 years ago, 12, 13 years ago when I first started writing and it kind of formed the basis of what I called at the time the power hypertrophy adaptive training and, you know, a, a heavy day and a lighter day. And I said, you know, there are some times where I think it's a good idea to go through, even bodybuilders, to go through heavy mesocycles of training where you're really trying to accumulate a lot of strength so that then you can go and lift heavier in that more quote-unquote bodybuilding rep range and induce more hypertrophy and more overload. Absolutely. And that's exactly my uh, thoughts. And I guess I now have to go back and uh, give you credit for all that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I wish I should have should have patented my idea, huh? Uh, then it'd be Brad Schoenfeld licensing it from BioLane LLC. <laughs> right, I was going to say before I get sued. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Uh, no, you don't have to worry about that. I think you'd be all right. I, I appreciate the contributions. you. And I think, you know, a lot of scientists, we come to – you know, people make the, the biggest deal of like you and I and Alan and, and all these other, whenever we disagree, right? And people say, well, Lane, Lane sells a product with BCAAs and you guys say BCAAs don't work, blah, 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 blah. Don't, you guys hate each other. And it's like, no, we have a difference of opinion on something, right? And that's fine. But I think for 95% of stuff, when you, people like you and me and Brad and Alan and Stu Phillips and these people who's, who do science and Eric Helms and, and, and Greg Knuckles and, we're going to sit down and we're going to agree on most of the stuff. I don't know if you saw, we had a round table with myself, Greg Knuckles, Eric Helms, and uh, Mike Isriatol. And it was on uh, max recoverable volume versus minimum effective dose of volume. And there, supposedly this is going to be a debate. And what it was, was 98% of us agreeing with each other. <laughs> so I think that most scientists that can sit down and look at the data, eventually they end up agreeing on, on most things and coming to similar conclusions. Not only do I agree with that, I think it's also important to understand that disagreement is healthy. So if some, uh, obviously you can look two, two very smart people and, and well-knowledgeable, well-read people can look at data and interpret them differently. And that's ultimately what drives science forward. Having these disagreements and saying, all right, we need clarity on it, we need clarification, ultimately uh, results in, in more research being conducted and getting a greater understanding. So uh, not Absolutely. only is there nothing wrong with that, it's, it's very healthy for the, uh, for the field. Absolutely, it's how we learn more. And 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 actually, my friend uh, Jeremy, I I love him. He he's an awesome guy. He tends to be a little bit stubborn though. He texted me one day after he had a discussion with a, another researcher, and uh, he said, "Well, I just don't understand how they can look at the same data and 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 not see what I'm seeing." And I'm like, "Well, that's because you guys look through the world with different prisms. I mean, look look at like I think it's more easy for people to see it like politically, for example, right? So politically, most people fall into two categories, right?" I'm weird. I'm the, I'm a third category, but uh, I'm a, I'm an independent slash libertarian. But most people fall into Republican or Democrat, right? And I think it's you know do, I tell I tell my friends this who get angry at the other party, and I say, well, do you think that all Democrats are bad people, or do you think that all Republicans are inherently bad people who want just to take over the world and be evil? You know, of of course not. Most people are good people. It's, so why does why, we all we are all looking at the same events? We're all looking at the same world. Why do we have different perspective? It's because our upbringing was different, and our experiences are different, and our perspective is different because the prism that we view the world through is different. And science is no different than that. The the prism that we view data through 
is our prism is going to skew that data. And so as pure as we'd like to think a scientific research study is, at the end of the day, the conclusion of a scientific research study is still that researcher's opinion. Yeah, well, the in an applied science, the discussion of it absolutely is. So when I'm writing up a, a research, a uh, discussion in my research studies, obviously there's certain inherent, when I say biases, way is a bias is just a way of looking at something. And you can't, people as objective as a scientist wants to be, and I try to be completely objective, you can't take out inherent bias because that's your upbringing. As you mentioned, you, you're brought up in a certain way. Everything you do in life influences the way you think. So how can you ever take the way you think out of, out of the Absolutely. equation? You, you try to be objective about it and try as much as possible to look at it from all sides. I, I think I do that. But there, there has to be inherent biases in every uh, researcher's write-up just based on their own, uh, their own upbringing and, and philosophy of the world. So, Brad, have there been instances when you uh, have read through other researchers' studies in full and you read the author's conclusion and then you go back and look at the results, the, the actual numbers uh, yourself, and you disagree with their conclusions? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> I had few papers for many, many journals. I serve as a reviewer mm -hmm. on dozens of journals at this point, and I'm constantly reviewing where uh, you're forced to really put the, put the author's feet to the fire and say, you know what, I think, look, at it. to me, you have a responsibility, and, and that's where part of that is we can get off on a tangent here and talk about the, in a, the inaccuracies of the peer review process and the inequalities of it, but uh, obviously bias is going to come in there, but you have to, if, to me, if I'm seeing something where the results are clearly, in my opinion, my humble opinion, it, uh, biased in terms of not looking objectively, where they're overly biased, you have to call the reviewers uh, out on it. And um, ultimately, a lot of papers get published uh, that I'm not involved. See, I think that every paper that I that I put through ultimately is a good paper because they're listening to my own, as, as Lane had pointed out with uh, what Jeremy said, because they have to comply to some extent. But yeah, you're going to get uh, you're going to get papers, and I, I see them all the time where I'm looking at the results and I'm saying, "What the heck is are, are they talking about here? It just isn't consistent." Uh, and it seems to me that they are skewing it towards their own um, their own objectives, their own you know, with their own confirmation bias might be on the. Topic. Well, I think this goes to uh, show why sometimes simply reading an abstract is not sufficient. Is that correct? Yeah, well, the, that is <laughs> Which one is what of a lot of people worst, like to do. Yeah, that's one of the worst uh, mm -hmm. egregious mistakes that mm -hmm. people make because the abstract, clearly, if you look at some of my studies, the abstract, number one, what people have to realize, you're limited usually to two, 200 to 250 words in an abstract. It's, it's the bare minimum of what you can include, and it doesn't get into any of the nuances. So you're going to just put the basic information that really doesn't give you a, often doesn't give you a true sense of what the study shows. So yeah, you can get it just a general idea. To me, the abstract serves as a way to say, hey, this is a study I want to actually read. It's of interest to me, and I want to read the entire paper. If you're just commenting uh, or going, basing your conclusions on what's in the abstract, very often it can really skew the, uh, the data to a, a conclusion that can't be drawn from the actual data. Dead on. Uh, I love it. Um, and I always, I always say I get annoyed with abstract scientists. Now, listen, I am guilty. I will say it right now. I'm guilty of reading abstract and getting excited and boom, putting it on Facebook. You know what I mean? Um, 
but for the most part, I really tried to sit down and, and read the the full studies. Um, and I, I think even if you just read the methods and the results, um, I think those are the two most important things to make sure. I always tell people when you when you're looking at a conclusion, make sure they actually tested what they say they tested. You know, like I, I'm with you, Brad. I've looked at some studies where I've looked at the data and said, "What do you? That's not what your data says at all." You know, like um, you didn't even test it the right way. Um, and, and so I think that that's really important. And, and people will ask me, what if I don't have a scientific background? How can I interpret that? And I said, well, you know, I think that reading studies and reading abstracts is good, but at a certain point, you probably do have to trust some people's opinion, right? And so that's why we recommend people who are people like you and Alan and James and, and, uh, and the rest of kind of the, the fitness community that, that, that really focuses on evidence-based stuff. Um, and I said, you know, if, you, if you're looking for a way to spot an expert, usually it's somebody who has a lot of self-doubt. <laughs> somebody who says, uh, I think this, but maybe when this and only in this situation. They're always putting things in context. They're always, you know, qualifying their statements rather than saying, nope, this is best. This is worst. Always do this. Never do this. I said, if somebody uses those kinds of words, it's, they're, they're not an expert. Well, speaking of, what's cool about uh, you, Brad, is especially for the listeners out there, is that you're such a pro prolific uh, Facebook poster, especially now, and you're always, I feel like almost on a daily basis, you're uh, posting about new studies Fighting coming out, right, and, 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 and uncovering interesting <laughs> gems that people would otherwise not even know about, and you get the traction you've been getting on your Facebook post as of late have been incredible with the number of shares and, and comments and likes, and I think it's a... You're doing an uh, incredible good for the industry in getting the word about science out there. Well, thank you, Zoe. And, and actually, the, the more the older I get, uh, hopefully I'm not that old, but the older I get, the more mature maybe I should say that I get, uh, the more I, I, my focus now is on educating people not only on fitness itself, but on the importance of taking an evidence-based approach of mm -hmm. understanding the nuances of science. And uh, there's so much crap that's on the internet and social media and, and the internet itself really has driven uh, the exercise and nutritional fields to a place, to a very bad place, uh, even worse than before. So it, it has a great, such great potential, but there are just so many uh, internet experts, if you will, who sure. by nature are not experts, uh, that are perpetrating misinformation uh, that it's so inherent and, and important for us who are someone like Lane who have profiles to make people understand the importance of, of science and to make people aware of the limitations that when the, another thing I see all the time and you see it even from mainstream media that will hold up a certain scientific study uh, and this as you know as a headline of something and when you actually look at what it's doing you know new ketogenic diet is uh, shows huge fat loss benefits and, <laughs> and if you actually look at the the study itself there's no no way if you're understanding limitations within uh, of the research itself that you would actually claim something like that so trying to educate people now has become a real hobby horse of mine and certainly if that's coming across I, I appreciate that yeah of course you know, and, and I think one of the the, the, the thing with evidence-based research is that, uh, you know, it's the harder route to go. It's a lot easier to just become an Instagram uh, fitness, self-proclaimed fitness model and attract a lot of followers and make money that way. But um, the thing with science, I think, is that it's intimidating. It's uh, you, you pull up a study. There's a lot of jargon that the you know, general public will not understand. 
and people like tend to shy away from that because it takes work to to use brain power and and and, and take the time to understand different turns and and concepts but um I'm curious, Brad, as to, I know you were a personal trainer for many years and you said you owned your own uh, facility for a while, but what, how did you make the, the jump from uh, be personal trainer um, to now being primarily a researcher, is that correct? Yeah, so uh, basically, and it kind of goes to what Lane was saying, yeah, if you don't want to put in the effort, then you have to start trusting people in the field who hopefully have uh, her objective and, and they're going to provide uh, information in a way that is as non-biased as possible. Now that said, if you have the, uh, you do not have to have an exercise science background to start to appreciate uh, research and exercise. And when I was, uh, I mentioned I had a business degree, I got into personal training, I just started immersing myself in the literature. Uh, now I did get some additional training, I, I was trained in uh, ultrasound as an ultrasound uh, technologist after school. Uh, I went into a family business that involved, a med it was a medical business, and I learned certain scientific principles, it was a lot of physics, etc., but really nothing from an exercise standpoint. I just started immersing myself in reading uh, the literature, reading PubMed, and the more you do it, the more you start to understand it. At the beginning, it's extremely difficult. Uh, as you said, there's just a lot of jargon involved, and um, uh, certainly... <laughs> If you're going to start looking at things like anabolic uh, signaling, intracellular signaling, yeah. it's going to be real rough for you. But just getting a, a basis of science from kind of basic studies can, can help. And the more you do it, the more you learn. I'll also say that, that another real issue we have is with the researchers themselves. And I you know I've been criticized by, by some researchers that I'm overly um, popular, if you will, that I, I uh, cater to the masses. And to me, there's this ivory tower aspect to researchers and nobody ever reads their research, which is the problem, yeah. that the, mm -hmm. the people don't actually get their research. If, if that's my crime, that I promote my research to the public, then, well, then I'm guilty as charged, I'll go to jail for it. Well, I think that's needed, because you can't just, it's not just right. enough to have, conduct studies, you have to get the word out about it. Right. What good is a study if nobody knows about it Absolutely. and it's not, mm -hmm. not used for, for its proper purpose, which mm -hmm. is practical application? You know, what's interesting, Brad, is uh, Dr. Lehman, uh, my my PhD advisor, he actually um, was very felt very much the same way, and I you know because I I started to develop a name while I was in that lab, and you know at one point we actually had a discussion. I said you know does this bother you that I'm out there talking about this stuff? And he said no, I think it's great. He said because at the end of the day, um, the, this research the public never hears about it. And if they hear about it, it's in some you know it's misconstrued by the media. And so he's like, I would rather have you out there and just taking it to the people as opposed to trusting that the scientific journal will somehow distill that properly and it will get to the people the way you intended it and um, the message will be clear. He said, I, I, I think it's great that you, you, you're out there and you're promoting it. He said, that's, that's a good thing. So I, I was very lucky, obviously, that I had a great PhD advisor and that he was um, – uh, very cool about that kind of stuff, but you're right. A lot of people have this kind of ivory tower uh, mentality where, you know, well, well, you're supposed to be a researcher, be quiet and do your job. You know, I think one of the best people who does it, you know, you obviously do a great job. I think another person who does it really well is Stu Phillips. You know, it's yeah. not a, it's not a, a great researcher and, and a, a real um, beacon in the field. And that, like you said, he puts his work out there. He, he knows how knows how to use social media for it. And uh, and he also, another thing I really respect about Stu, 
he uh, stirs discourse. He, he likes to mix it up. He likes to uh, take on if someone disagrees, he'll get into a discussion about it. And that, again, furthers people's understanding. And that, to me, is really important. And for those who want to criticize it, again, I think that's real old school. And we got to we got to change that mentality if we really want our, our work to come through to the general public. Totally agreed. Uh, at this point, I'm going to take a real – we're not going to take a break because I'm loving this discussion, but I'm just going to give uh, some people some shout-outs shout who, who support Physique Science Radio. One is my friend Paul Ravella. Paul is a great yeah, coach. He owns, he owns Pro Physique. He has coached Sohi before for Correct. her shows. Is that when you won your pro card, Sohi? Uh, it's the, uh, it was the year before, so the year after That's I right. won my pro card. but. Uh, it really set me up metabolically. I learned a lot from, um, he, he changed my view, some of my views on, on my approach to coaching as well. So it was great working with him. Yeah, Paul's a wonderful coach. Uh, we highly recommend him. Uh, check out his website, prophysique.com. I always tell people that, you know, I would recommend my own family and friends to Paul, and that's because I have done exactly that. Um, you know, uh, Paul's a great guy. And then our, our people who have supported us, Quest Nutrition, myoatmill.com, um, and also, we've got to get ourselves paid. Make sure you go to Sohi's website, Sohi Lee. Is it, what is it? Sohifit.com. Yes, but Sohilee.com actually redirects to Sohifit.com. So ah, very smart. Very smart. By the way, everyone, aspiring entrepreneurs, always buy your domain name, first name, last name.com, as soon as you can. There's an interesting story. That. I don't want to get too far off on a tangent, but you know, I went to buy my, my own domain name in 2007 and somebody had already bought it. No. And uh, they wanted like $10,000 from uh, not Not oh, then. Of course. But, um, yeah, so I was like, well, that dog ain't going to hunt. And that's actually how we came up with BioLane. So, uh, so LaneNorton.com is still not yours. I believe I – be, actually, no, you know what? Paul, uh, great, the great guy he is, huh? bought it for me. Oh, nice. So, yeah, he negotiated with the guy and got mm -hmm. him down to like, I don't know, like 300 bucks. <laughs> I don't wow. know. I did that for 2000 Wow. Paul – I guess Paul can just convince anybody of anything, right? Um but yeah, and then obviously uh, check out my our customized macronutrient tracker and recommender and coaching service, Avatar Nutrition. And then uh, anything you want to know about myself and my research and also the BioLane Foundation is at BioLane.com. All right, getting back into it now that we're done selling some stuff. Uh, <laughs> we, uh, Brad, you recently conducted a meta-analysis of hypertrophy and, and volume, I believe. Do you, you care to talk about that at all? I know you really... I think your meta-analyses are your, like your, your, your kind of, I don't want to say golden goose, but I think it's what you're most proud of. Am I correct? Yeah, well, certainly, yeah. I mean, I, I love all sorts of research, but the meta-analyses I'm particularly, particularly fond of because they allow us a much greater, as, as you know, Lane, but for those who don't, meta-analysis is a pooling of all the research that's been done on a given topic. Well, you have to look at what a certain inclusion criteria, but what it does, it allows you to have much greater statistical power on a subject. Whereas if you're carrying out the studies I carry out, I'll have 20 to 30 subjects. That's not a you don't get great statistical power and often things, uh, underlying um, results can get skewed within the, because there's a lack of, of subjects, a lack of sufficient number of subjects. Whereas if you pool data from 10, 15, 20 different studies, uh, you're getting much, much greater statistical power and can draw much greater inferences thus. And yeah, we just carried out one which I'm real excited about. It was just published yesterday uh, in the Journal of Sports Science, a really good journal. And uh, we looked at the weekly volume per muscle group. 
So rather than just looking at sets, which is off, which is generally the thing that a lot of people focus on, like single versus multiple sets. Well, I mean, if you're training once a week, there's a difference than if you're training three days a week on a single versus multiple set. Really, it comes down to your weekly volume is a much more relevant yardstick of, of what uh, of growth of growth potential from volume. So what we did was we looked at um, we stratified between we did a whole bunch of different things. I, by the way, carried this out with colleagues who have done a bunch of meta analyses. Now, James Krieger and De Dan Ogborn, if you don't know either of them, uh, look them up on social media. Both really great researchers, very astute uh, scientists and, and above board people, people that just I have complete uh, respect for and confidence in their integrity. Uh, so with that said, we looked at, we stratified into one to four uh, sets per muscle per week, five to nine, and 10 plus per week. And we found a graded dose response relationship where I don't have the exact figures in front of me, but it was something like a 5% gain associated with one to four sets per muscle per week, 7% uh, gain with uh, five to nine, and then 10 plus was uh, not almost 10% uh, per 10% uh, growth. Uh, for 10 plus per week. Now, what we didn't see, that's what you can consider then is that 10 sets per muscle per week is a minimum threshold to achieve your optimal volume, uh, your optimal hypertrophy, I'm sorry. But we don't know what the maximal threshold is. So we there weren't right. enough studies to say, well, if you do 14, that's going to be even better. They're just the, the number of studies with more than 10 sets per muscle per week wasn't sufficient to run that type of analysis. So really what we can use again this information for is saying that we'll use 10% as a floor and then you got to experiment. And again, it's also not a binary thing. It doesn't mean that, well, I'll do 12 sets every week uh, per muscle group. You could do 10 sets for a month, 15 sets for another month, and 20 sets for the third month, and then maybe have an overreaching effect. This is something that I've experimented a lot with in periodizing volume. Uh, so, by the way, volume is something that can and, and, in my opinion, should be periodized over time because if you keep doing high levels of volume, ultimately it can lead to overtraining. And by having on deload periods as well as um, not having periods where you're using lower amounts of volume, you can, at least theoretically, hypothetically, continue to see gains uh, without hitting a plateau or without devolving into a, an overtrained state. So, really interesting stuff. Another couple things that should be noted. Uh, very little evidence, very little, it was a paucity of data on trained subjects. So really most of what we have to go upon is untrained subjects. At least you can theorize that trained subjects might need more volume over time, although that is, that's just speculative on my part. And uh, another important thing that we found, so we, we looked at all the different modalities we considered like DEXA and um, the BOD pod, uh, plethysmography, air displacement plethysmography, which are whole body uh, measures of fat-free mass. And then we also looked at MRI and, and ultrasound. We kind of grouped them into all into muscle, but then we stratified. We, we then looked at them separately in terms of your direct measures, your MRI and ultrasound, which actually measure muscle-specific gains versus your whole body gains. And we found that the uh, muscle-specific uh, assessments, the MRI and ultrasound, strengthened our model substantially. So it just shows that when you're looking at uh, muscle growth using DEXA, it's not, I'm not saying it's a bad technique, you know, bad uh, assessment tool, but it has a lot of limitations. It's certainly not going to give you the same uh, accuracy of data if you're looking to get real accurate results as you'll get with MRI. And uh, it's kind of was heartening to see that uh, when you actually did stratify it out, the, uh, our, our findings were strengthened to a greater degree. 
Well, I think that makes sense. Um, you know, people people talk about Dex as the gold standard. Actually, Eric Helms has a really great um, has a really great um, talk where he talks about um, Dexa and these different body composition measurements. Um, and he he always says, you know, there really really is no good way to measure body fat. Like if you're because you're always using assumptions and extrapolations. You know, if you actually want to get the actual measure of body fat. Now the relative change is 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 you know reasonable, but um, I, I, what people don't realize is Dexa. When you register a lean body mass, lean body mass is not the same thing as muscle mass, mm-hmm. right? Um, lean body mass is everything that's not fat, skin, hair, bone, organ weights, all that kind of stuff. And so, just to make the leap and say that that's muscle, um, you know, is 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 tenuous. And so. Yeah, like you said, when you, when you extrapolate or when you when you use like site specific stuff, I think that that very much strengthens your case. And I know Bill Campbell; he almost almost exclusively uses ultrasound just because he likes to just look at the. He said practically, I don't care what their actual body fat percentage is. I care did their millimeters of fat in a certain area go down. Right, right, and and yeah, and as you pointed out, so Dexa has limitations for fat mass, but it has even more limitations for muscle mass. Because like you said, you're not looking, I mean, differences in extracellular water can have a huge effect uh, on it. It doesn't distinguish between extracellular water or intracellular for that matter. But extracellular tends to vary a lot more uh, versus uh, muscle contractile protein. So yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's a nice tool to just get general uh, observations. But certainly if you're looking at uh, true changes in muscle mass, you want a more direct measure. You know, for so many years, I was told that DEXA scan is the gold standard for measuring body composition, etc. And so last uh, last October is when I competed in a, my the OCB nationals, and that's when I won my my height class and um, became an IFPA bikini pro, which was an exciting time for me. Um, but it was also to me the the best uh, package that I'd ever brought in terms of uh, you know being my leanest and and. and you know, my bikini suit, everything was, was on point. And so the following, I think it was the following week or the week after I decided to get a DEXA scan. And uh, I know Brad, you're familiar with the story, but it was not long after my show, I was up maybe 0.4 pounds from stage weight. I was 106 pounds, um, at five two height and, uh, went in that morning and the DEXA scan measured me and I had a, a 24 inch waist and I was measured at 26% body fat. And I go and I, um, Go Brad. Yeah, mm-hmm. I go, Brad, I'm 26%. He goes, there's no way. There's no way. And uh, and now I'm like, you know, now I obviously know that it measured me probably a little bit high because the year prior with, with uh, Dr. Bill Campbell, I had been measured with ultrasound at 16%. Um, so I'm sure that if I were to go back now, it would measure me, you know, it would still, it would be a reliable measure in that it would probably be up a few percentage points from the 26%, um, but definitely worth taking uh, taking the, the information with a grain of salt. That's, that's 100% true. I mean, I think I think your in individual difference is, is a reasonable, like you can look at that and say that that may be different. You know, if you measured on the exact same apparatus and then you measured later, um, that you would you would see that difference. Um, but you can't compare across apparatuses, uh, or even, even like one DEXA to another can be different. I mean, it's, you'd be surprised. Um, the, 
the 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 variability is huge. Um, so yeah, I think that that's a, that's an excellent point, Sohi. Uh, Brad, there was one last question I wanted to ask about your. Uh, I, I'm especially curious, and I'm sure there are a lot of listeners out there who are curious about you know getting into, involved in the research world. And you know what's fascinating to me is, from a psychological perspective, since that is my my primary interest, is is watching how um, even in the face of uh, very convincing evidence that that says one thing, people will very stubbornly hold on to their beliefs. Um, Ooh, that, yeah, in, in the face of, you know, it, it actually, there's actually a, I forget the name of it, but there's actually a psychological phenomenon whereby people, um, some people Cognitive actually, dissonance. Is that Ooh. what it is? Well, well, they, some people actually, they will hold on to their beliefs even s more strongly yes. when they see evidence to the contrary, uh, almost as though they need to really, you know, truly believe that what they what they uh, know to be true is, is, is the actual truth. But Brad, for you, I'm, I'm curious to know, uh, I know you've, you are uh, very, very heavily involved in the research world nowadays, and I'm curious as to over, your, over the span of your uh, involvement in the, in, the, in the fitness industry, um, what long-held beliefs uh, that you thought were true back in the day have, have you now since changed your mind on uh, in the face of, of, of sufficient science, I guess you could say? Yeah, I've changed my mind on pretty much everything. <laughs> right? Maybe not pretty much everything, but I, I can run down a litany of things. I mean, I was a huge proponent of nutrient timing, getting your protein immediately after training for maximizing results. I now think it has very little effect, yeah. minimal effect. I used to believe that you couldn't gain muscle from any light, using weights lighter than 65% or so of 1RM. Completely shattered that with my own research. Uh, I was of the opinion that a bro split, uh, training muscles once per week was the best way to train. Uh, I have now come, I don't want to say full circle, but certainly to the point where uh, at least uh, multiple frequency training is at least as good, if not better, and probably is better at least for short, uh, certain cycles of time. Uh, so just so many uh, things uh, that I can, you know, those just off the cuff uh, come to me. Uh, but I'm kind of, you know, I'll tell you this too. When I do my research, you, you have to uh, conduct what's called a research hypothesis, which is basically what you think the results are going to be. Uh -huh. I am at best 50 50 in terms really? of predicting yeah. uh, wow. what's, what's going to happen in my studies. So, uh, I, I mean, I do hit the mark sometimes. The volume was one thing that I had, uh, had always thought was a big driver, and that certainly came out uh, correct. Um, fasted cardio was another one. I did a study on fasted cardio and based on the research I saw it really didn't make much sense to me and that held true. But uh, again, pretty much 50-50. And, and look, the mark of a good scientist, and I'm sure Lane will agree with this, is the willingness to admit you're wrong. I, I'm not beholden to any belief. It's I just want, want to seek the truth. If I can find a better way to do something, it's no crime to say that I, I was wrong in something. You know, this is what I believe today. I reserve the right to change my opinion based upon what uh, comes out tomorrow. A good colleague of mine, Brett Contreras, taught me that and, uh, or said that uh, that's his moniker and I, that's really the, um, the philosophy that I've, I've always taken. Uh, we, we should never be beholden to a certain belief. Uh, it's not macho to hold on to a belief when in the face of, of evidence that is uh, strongly conflicting against you. So uh, a, again, a true scientist is skeptical but always open to change. Brad, I'll, I'll go one further, and that's um, – I tell people at the beginning of my speech, I think I did this at the Epic Fitness Summit. Like I talked about how you couldn't – I opened up with that 
you couldn't prove anything in science, that you could only support hypothesis with data. And, um, and said, I'm probably going to get some of this shit wrong. <laughs> in fact, I know I'm going to get some of it wrong, but I'm always going to try and get it as right as I possibly can. And this is just my opinion of the data that's out there. Right. And uh, I think when you come to it with that kind of humility um, and understand, because I've done the same thing. Like my most interesting research, I think, was the stuff I got wrong, you know. Um, and further, I, I, I tell people, I say, save your beliefs for church. Okay, science has no place for beliefs because we should have ideas. It's because an idea is fine. An idea is fine to have. But when you have a belief, that brings ego into it. And that tends to make people want to defend that belief no matter what. So you mentioned uh, uh, cognitive dissonance. And you, you were talking about a, there was actually a study done where they uh, took people, and I believe it was uh, political. And so they. They showed them data that would that would either confirm or contradict their current political uh, viewpoint on a subject, and what they found were both were equally as effective at entrenching the person in that belief. So, oh, great. <laughs> so if they got evidence that confirmed it, they were like, "Aha, yes." If they got evidence to refute it, they dug their heels in even yeah. further, right? Yeah. And so, I think that that's where we've got to be careful. Like we have to. Being wrong is a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing because if you're wrong about something, that means you haven't been doing everything you can. That means there's room for improvement. That's, that's amazing. That's awesome. Whenever I'm wrong about something, I'm excited because it means that I have a chance to improve things that I've been doing. And I think we should try to approach things from that perspective. And this should not be religion. Uh, and, and unfortunately, it is with a lot of people. So that's, I think that's a really nice analogy you gave. Uh, fitness is not religion. Fitness is, is a science. Exercise is a science. And uh, a science is something that is uh, constantly in flux. That we, we develop theories and theories are made to be changed based upon new emerging evidence. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. And I, sorry. So, you, uh, you know, I, I think like things like, you know, you can look at the way people behave in terms of like organic food or artificial sweeteners. Like the people who are against artificial sweeteners, it is a, a religious cult. I mean, there's no other way to describe it. Um, it's 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 amazing. I, I had somebody literally say to me, "You can never show me any evidence that will convince me that these are safe." And I said, "Well, then the discussion is over right. then there's because nothing more to talk about. there's no there's there's nothing to talk about mm -hmm. because I can't convince you no matter what. So if you're not willing to value data, then uh, we have nothing to talk about." Yeah. I, I've had people defriend me on Facebook when I've posted uh, studies showing oh, no funny. effects of. Uh, of artificial sweeteners on, on markers. Absolutely. Health. Absolutely. I've had people tell me I was a bad person for it. It's, it's, uh, <laughs> it's pretty interesting. I think at the end of the day, um, a lot of people, they latch onto these different movements, because, not because they care so much because they want to belong. Because I think when you identify with something, uh, people inherently just want to belong, if that makes sense. And I think this goes to explain in large part why even when we have new findings like the one that uh, Brad I interviewed back in January on your uh, study from 2015 about how longer rest periods of uh, three minutes versus one minute is uh, has been was found to be superior for both strength and hypertrophy gains stuff like that where you know people think that maybe 90 seconds was was one was the belief that was the optimal rest period for for hypertrophy um, things th concepts like that people are still, even to this day, 
uh, still very much touting the shorter rest periods for hypertrophy, et cetera. But it takes a while for, for uh, new information to take root and be accepted uh, in, amongst the general public. It takes a long time, um, even after you have study after study coming out, because people are stubborn. Yeah, the stubborn and as Lane pointed out, uh, they're they're also wanting to hold on to their beliefs. So it's even in the face of the evidence, it's not they're not necessarily going to uh, change their opinions anyway. Yeah, and I think that I mean, you look at I tell people we have come a long way because ten years ago, that I, I felt like I was al not alone, but I felt like I was like one of the only people out there that was like touting you know evidence based stuff and beating my head against the wall in bodybuilding forums. Nobody wanting to listen to me saying, "Hey, you can, you can eat fruit. It's fine. You can eat dairy. You know all these different things." And people, uh, people not believing me. And now, you know, you, there's a whole evidence-based fitness movement, and there's there's drawbacks to that movement too, as we we've, we've discussed some of them. But uh, for the most part, this the idea of people requiring evidence is a new thing in fitness because it used to be, I'm the biggest, most jacked person here. Uh, how dare you question me? And so now, at least we've moved past that. So I do think the industry's come a long way, and hopefully we'll progress even further in the future. Yeah, agreed. Well, Brad, thank you so much for, for coming on. Is there anything else that you'd like to plug, or where can people find more inf information about you? And do you take uh, students? Is, is, is there that opportunity for, for kids out there? Yeah, so and now, unfortunately, we only have an undergrad program at my school. We're in the process of trying to uh, establish a master's level program and hopefully a PhD at some point, but a master's level within the next couple of years. But certainly, I'm in the Bronx, uh, my university, and would love the opportunity for motivated people in exercise science. I'm an educator. Would love to uh, have people come in, and we have a really great program. Uh, people can check me out. I have a website called lookgreatnaked.com, which, by the way, is not lookgoodnaked.com, which, from what I understand, not that I have been to it, but has a somewhat different type of content. But on why there. would you want to look oh, good when you can look great? <laughs> so. Looking up that, hang on, everybody stand by looking up that website. Lane will report back. Oh, goodness. Uh, <laughs> but lookgreatnaked.com, and it, I have all sorts of, it's a free website. I have a blog, and uh, basically, again, just look to, uh, to educate through uh, through my teachings and through my research and, and what I believe. And I'm, I'm always happy to uh, debate and to discuss alternative views as, some, as long as someone's respectful. I'd also recommend following Brad on Facebook if you are not already to, to stay up to date with the latest. I always see him pop up on my news feed with interesting study findings. But also, um, Brad, from my understanding, most of your, most if not all of your uh, research studies are available on ResearchGate, is that correct? That is correct. Yeah, uh, the vast majority of my papers, mm -hmm. if you go to ResearchGate and just type in my name, uh, all the PDFs are available for download. Cool. I'm constantly updating it as, as much as possible. There are some journals that don't allow that, uh, but the vast majority do in, in some form or another, and I, I do post them to ResearchGate. Awesome. Fantastic, Brad. Well, we appreciate you having you on. And ladies and gentlemen, we are back baby we we'll be coming out with more episodes and we look forward to you guys listening so hopefully we came back with a bang and we want to thank brad schoenfeld dr brad schoenfeld for joining us on here thank you brad it's been a real pleasure thank me you. too man we'll have to do it again sometime all right, all right. thanks everyone